Welcome Pramod Nayar from the University of Hyderabad, India. We are so, I'm so, so honored to have you with me today, Pramod. Thank you for having me. So we're going to talk about, you are, I think, one of the most prolific scholars I know, or one, yeah, one of several, but my gosh, you publish at least a book a year, sometimes more. And um, what I'm really kind of curious about is the whole vision, of course, your whole approach, you, you, you work on post-colonial, you work on this um, c consumer culture, cultural studies, you do books on extreme contemporary culture, but Tell us about comic studies, Pramod, and how you got into this. Well, uh, Frederick, just as you mentioned, uh, it's one of several interests. Uh, people will say, those who don't like me say I have too many. People who like me say it's too few. So comics is one of several things. I got into comic studies fairly late, I would think, though comics in terms of my reading has been a very old fascination. I've read comics from childhood. Uh, like many people of my uh, class upbringing, English educated, I read the comic books, Amar Katha, Tandamama, the Commando comics, all those uh, Mandrake Phantom, Flash Gordon, Indrajal comic, from Indrajal comics, this table. The classics illustrated, that's how I first got introduced to Valentine and the big adventure tradition, they came in the form of the classics illustrated uh, for people who, like I said, of a certain class, it was part of what we have been brought upon. I did do an early chapter on uh, Amashtra Katha comics in a book, Breaking Culture, that was, I think, 2003 or 2004, not exactly sure. Uh, more like a trial run. Sustained academic work on comics came fairly late, about 2011 or so, 2012, then I published on superhero comics, which was uh, uh, one of the largest genres that I have been brought up on. Somebody needs to switch their audio off, please. I'm getting background noise, yeah. Okay, thank you. So I wasn't very systematic in pursuing a specific genre or line of inquiry through comics, I must say. Uh, the superhero genre recommended itself because that was a genre, one of the genres I grew up with. And though I read uh, texts like Mouse, I not thought about working on them very seriously. But then I would a whole bunch of other non-fictional graphic novels. Uh, and that was uh, a genre within a genre, a well-loved medium like comics introduced me to a sub-genre like the non-fictional text. Mouse being one of the earliest. So I could see a turn from comics becoming grittier, moving from fictional superheroes to concentration camps, to, from the fantasy to gritty socialism, uh, social realism. And in 2012, I think, I published an essay on Bhimayana in studies in South Asian film and media. But I was still not thinking in terms of a book. Scattered essays appeared. Frank, on Frank Miller's Ronin, The Dark Knight Returns, and things. But Bhimayana was the first Indian graphic novel I worked seriously with. And around 2015, I, uh, well, I, I worked with other things, like you said, consumer culture, 
written stuff on cultural studies and, and things like that. I thought of a full length book around that time. I was working on a book on human rights and literature incidentally, and I was reading a lot of graphic novels about war and genocide and atrocity. That's how the book actually happened. Um, I have read stuff from outside India and published work on Mao's uh, incognito, uh, the Ukrainian and Russian notebooks on uh, Trinity, the text on the atom bomb on the Manhattan Project and things like that. And among the Indian graphic novels, uh, I have uh, in another panel, so to speak, I work consistently on essays, uh, averaging about uh, an essay a year. Um, one text has been this side, that side. Uh, Vishishati uh, Ghosh's Jelly Kam, A Garden in the Wasteland, on which I, got, I published two essays in South Asian Review and one more recently in English language notes uh, on Finding My Way, which appeared in Narrative and, and things like that. Some comparative studies I did, Hochi Anderson's King and Bhimayana, the Mandela and Gandhi biographies. And more recently, I think, uh, uh, just a couple of months ago, once come, uh, been done on Things Jack's uh, amazing minimalist uh, text undocumented on uh, refugees. So you could say that I converted a reading habit, uh, many would say a bad habit, uh, into an academic inquiry. And my current project is a full-length book on the human rights graphic novel. So it's not been a very systematic progression, but there is progress, you might say. Yeah, I love it. Um, thank you for sharing that. The journey um, also um, the classics illustrated, you know, and the sort of significance mm -hmm. of that in your kind of, you know, early reading and, mm -hmm. you know, how the classics kind of come to us and sometimes in not the ways that, uh, you know, we think of in the traditional uh, ways and then through superheroes and then to this, this, mm -hmm. uh, these other sort of more socio-politically minded comics. Um, tell yeah. us, um, and, and you're continuing this work, I love it. Um, what what for you is kind of exciting about the Indian graphic novel or comics in India um, from your book to the work that you're doing today? Well, I think one of the central uh, concerns for me is to see how the form develops along various lines. And I think the earlier... Uh, uh, novels in Indian writing in English, the social realist tradition has had something to do with uh, the kind of themes that the Indian graphic novel is interested in addressing questions of uh, caste-based oppression, uh, child abuse, the partition of India, so themes from history that come in uh, uh, in, in, in this uh, demotic form. Uh, political issues, uh, I just mentioned that the draconian national emergency of 1975, uh, middle class life, all of it. So I think what we have got is a demotic form uh, for the English speaking readers. And of course, for those who can afford comics from publishers like Drawn and Quarterly, very expensive in India, they create a certain kind of readership. So I think this is a, an interesting uh, moment for us. They, constitute, I would think, a very important cultural text that describe, critique, analyze, and subvert social codes, questions, uh, social inequities, historical memory, and, and things like that. Uh, what's exciting about them is the multimodal literacy which they force you to develop. Uh, the drawing, the way the paratexts operate, 
for instance, Vishwajyoti Ghosh's uh, Delhi Kam is particularly interesting in the way uh, slogan state notices that signify oppression and it's, uh, uh, it's, it's, it's a legitimized monopoly or violence gets into the frame of your reading. And the position, the location of subalterns in history and subalterns in panels being arranged in certain ways. That's one. Uh, the other is when the Navayana publishers created Bhimayana and Finding My Way using Gond art uh, in preference to the traditional panel gutter arrangement of sequential art forms. It did something very interesting and very challenging. It brought non-European forms into a global medium. Uh, ethnic art became suddenly uh, ultra chic, so to speak. Uh, but it also disrupted the global forms mandate. It more or less vernacularized that form. And I think that as an uh, that was a very interesting and important experiment in what they were trying to do. Uh, I would also think that uh, texts like Finding My Way uh, and uh, Bhimayana um, repurposed the visual medium to discuss things like caste uh, and caste-based oppression. So that's a very important uh, development. The other one would be that when they made uh, Ambedkar's autobiographical notes into uh, Bhimayana and the work and the autobiography of artists into a graphic novel form, it did something about the idea of the memoir itself. And I'm, I'm working here with uh, the memoir theorist Thomas Hauser's formulation where memoirs and autobiographies are always written by somebody within quote, somebody. But here, as Kauser would say, are autobiographies by nobodies. It's a nobody memoir. They, they are actually nobodies. Moving beyond political figures, stars, it foregrounded the life of an artist. So I think those kinds of shifts become very crucial to talk about uh, the middle class, the competitiveness. Sarnath Benaji does that in uh, his texts. Uh, the way history has been redrawn repurposed, retrofitted in some cases. So I think the intrusion of the medium into the visual spaces marks the creation of a very different kind of public sphere as well. So in terms of expanded cultural spaces, um, even if you are not actively participating, we are, when we listen and when we read, you still participate in the making of a renovated public sphere. By renovated public sphere, I'm thinking of the power of a text like Dhimayana, and it is now a text that is taught across university syllabi in the country uh, and abroad, uh, I am told. Finally, I would think artists like Orijit Sen, who are visual artists and who drew graphic novels, Orijit Sen did actually the first uh, graphic novel in India, are also public art artists. And a lot of Orijit Sen's public art murals, for instance, are part of the uh, new forms of public sphere interactions, public sphere, uh, engagements that emerge. So I think in terms of the expansion of cultural and civic space via this medium, it's a very exciting time. How are, how, um, Pramod, this is very exciting and, and I'm so, so um, honored that you are bringing this knowledge to my world, uh, something that I really don't know a lot about, to be honest. But let me ask you, how are you, the readers coming to these graphic novels to these 
these uh, multimodal stories? How are they getting, are, is it through internet? Is it through, is it through physical copies? There are physical copies available. The Indian uh, texts are uh, available fairly easily via usual uh, uh, physical bookshops and, and Amazon and things like that. Uh, libraries have begun to stock these as well. They're still expensive, I must say that. They're still expensive as compared to other texts. Primarily, I suppose, because the production costs are high. I don't know. I, I don't know the cultural production end of things I'm, I'm not very aware of. I'm not besides that. Uh, people did that for Indian comics, like uh, um, Kathy McLean's book on the Amarchitra Katha uh, was done also with a lot of uh, interviews with the artists, with the publishers, uh, printers, uh, the the people who drew it, the people who uh, wrote the scripts and things like that. Uh, that's not that part. The ethnography of the book and its circulation is something I'm not uh, interested in or competent to explore. So the books are increasingly available. Uh, as for the readership, they are, I think, still restricted to the English-speaking uh, audience in India, which is a small percentage of the population. But what has to be understood is there's a huge uh, uh, vernacular language uh, comic book uh, tradition also in the country. Uh, Hindi, uh, Raj Comics, for instance, is one of the largest publishers of comics uh, in the Hindi language. But that's again an area I have uh, very little, practically no expertise in. But so comics have been a part of the tradition in India. The graphic novel, more recently, a more expensive medium but still available and expanding. In terms of readership, the other thing I noticed is in the last, say, three to five years, there are more PhDs being done on the graphic novel than I have met in the last uh, 10 years or so. So I have uh, discovered people working on Joe Sacco and comics journalism, uh, and I got queries and requests from various universities. Uh, I'm not commenting on the quality of the work being produced. We leave that aside. That's a debate of an entirely different kind. But yeah, there's a lot of work being done. So I think the readership is expanding. Really fascinating um, that there's this, this not just explosion, but say a deep interest and that you have, like here, I would say, very parallel kind of experience with graduate students who have, um, you know, are writing dissertations now on graphic novels, on comics, not just chapters, but actual dissertations. Um, yeah, so one of the things that you work on quite a bit is uh, not just kind of expansions of cultural spaces, but expansions within systems of surveillance. Can you elaborate a little bit on that? Uh, in terms of the graphic novels, they have not addressed this question as much as it ought to be, except one text, uh, the man I mentioned, Vishwachati Ghosh's Delhi Kaam, which does which thematizes surveillance itself. So it's not being uh, subject to that level of scrutiny within this particular media. I, th there are some uh, texts from the stable of George Martin, who he does his work under the pen name of Apupan. And uh, some of his work, uh, which you see in the series that he calls the Halala uh, series, he has the theme of surveillance woven into whatever he's doing, especially the uh, surveillance by the states, by law enforcement authorities, the kind of moral uh, policing that is done 
by a very postmodern consumer culture as to what you eat, what you drink, the monitoring of it. So as a theme, you see it only in very scattered forms. As a, as a, as something, uh, comics, graphic novels in India by um, creators there as um, it then in and of itself, a kind of resistant uh, narrative, possibly a way of expanding when there's a tightening and increase in surveillance. Would you agree with that? Or is that too uh, simple? Yeah. No, no, it hasn't happened yet. You're thinking more in terms of the underground comics movement kind of version or a subculture. Is that is that what you're getting at? Yeah, that's, there's a subculture. that's what no, I was thinking. No, we, we, haven't, we haven't got that going yet. Uh, there is not really an underground. I'm, I'm sure it happens in the form of uh, memes being circulated on private networks, but I'm not aware of it. Very interesting, yeah. Um, uh, so let me ask you, Pramod, you, you know, in all of the many, many books and all of the research that you do, you also have written on the concept of post-humanism. And tell me, are you seeing any connections with your work in comics, um, your, you know, your interest in culture, pop culture in India? Yeah, my interest in what? I missed the last part. In the post-humanism and popular cultural... Oh, popular culture, yeah. yeah. Right, right. Well, yes. Uh, I would think the superhero genre fits right into the post-human temper and temperament. And uh, if you have been brought up as I have been on the superhero genre, and the superhero is not only Western, we have had stories about superheroes in Indian traditions as well, gods, demons, and other things. There have been post-human figures before. So uh, we didn't have a term for it, but uh, it has been as a kind of transformational, aspirational metaphor that has occurred uh, across our readings. So whether it is the militarized uh, body assembly of Captain America built by a technology and pharmacology, or uh, I, I think it represents a kind of the myth or the illusion of a perfectible human form and is therefore an aspirational model. Uh, and posthumanism does offer you that as a popular culture version of it. Effectively, in many cases, it's a kind of techno pharmaco masculinity. In most cases, there are exceptions. And there have been posthuman figures before, mostly the superhero variety, like I said. But also, um, if you think of Asterix, which gives you superhuman figures, superhero figures. So I'm thinking of what uh, Scott Jeffrey would think of as superhumanism, which kind of subsumes posthuman and transhuman into itself, uh, and variations on that theme. For example, it's not just the techno human. We are also, we should also be considering uh, characters like the Swamp Thing, which ought to get more attention than it does. Then the human-animal uh, hybrids like the X-Men. So the visions of the post-human have changed. And for me, what's interesting is the critical philosophical post-humanist strand and the pop cultural strand which merge in films and popular culture forms like comics, but are central to how we think of 
uh, the posthuman itself. So for instance, I was thinking of this uh, <laughs> interesting book, Paul Zaire's Becoming Batman, which documents how body training, the martial arts and nutrition <laughs> make Batman what he is to show how a superhuman can be broken down into bits. So I would think in terms of popular culture, I would go with Cesare Rone's suggestion that uh, of about science fiction that posthumanism in popular culture is a mode of awareness. I'm borrowing that phrase from uh, Cesare Rone's uh, description of science fiction. A mode of awareness. It incorporates some amount of scientific uh, knowledge, a lot of scientific speculation. It has philosophy, a wild imagination, and cultural theory looking at the future generation. So I think of posthumanism in pop culture as generating a mode of awareness. For instance, in Apupan's new work, Snake and the Lotus, it's a posthumanist vision, but merges it with an environmental consciousness. It shows uh, the green with the capital G has been destroyed. The earth has been taken over. Uh, we are all slaves to machinery. And there's an ecological return of the repressed. But towards the end, uh, it gives you a posthumanist vision of a return to a sacred world, which is a bit of a romanticization. But like I said, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a speculative thing. Uh, and in which many life forms coexist. And here, Apupen concludes with his protagonist, who sees the interconnectedness of all life forms. The ant, the whale, the locust, the human. It's a very posthumanist vision. So I think of it, which is why I said as a, as a, as a, as a mode of awareness, it's looking at an awareness of the interconnectedness of life forms, the co-evolution of species. And popular culture has an enormous, an enormous role to play in the transformational vision, which is posthumanism. So I think the comic book version, the graphic novel version is central to how uh, posthumanism is likely to evolve and become uh, integrated into a social imaginary. Wow, beautiful, beautifully articulated, Pramod. Thank you. Um, this kind of leads us into your work on eco-precarity and dystopias. Um, maybe you can elaborate a little bit on this work. Uh, yeah, eco-dystopias, eco-precarity. Yeah. yeah. Um, for some reason, that phrase has, uh, uh, the, the, the title has become extremely popular and I get queries uh, about it. It was coined, as somebody said about the British Empire, in a fit of absence of mind. <laughs> but it seems to have uh, gone every, every, every place. Um, Eco-dystopias in the kind of uh, version that I can think of and have worked with would be primarily the text I mentioned, Apupan's uh, text. And eco-dystopia here is not an invasion narrative. I find that uh, very interesting. I'm, I'm not looking at the outbreak and the invasion narrative as uh, made standard in Hollywood. But in these uh, graphic texts that I'm interested in, the eco-dystopia is, is a human creation. It's what we have done. So Apupan's Halala series shows excessive consumption, which in all dystopian texts is uh, the key cause of uh, everything going wrong. Uh, our greed to consume more and more. And like I mentioned briefly, uh, it concludes with the post-human sense of the world. But I, I've also worked with and been interested in texts like uh, Rachel Hope Allison's I Am Not a Plastic Bag, uh, which is about the great Pacific garbage patch. 
And uh, there I looked at how trash evolves into a trash monster. And the trash monster with a face, uh, it's traditionally called uh, pareidolia, where you see faces in clouds and stones. So I worked with something called pareidolic reading, where the monster comes together and the visage will, will, will haunt us uh, humans for a long time. And because the garbage patch, the plastic is so supreme, it's not an invasion from outer space. It is what we have created, which has invaded our world. And uh, I, I created a portmanteau term. I call it the plastocene, uh, like all the pliocenes and the other scenes in geological terms. A plastocene, which is about which plays on the word scene as well as C-E-N-E, which gestures at both the geological and the fact of it being theater. And I thought it was a very interesting text because it's also wordless. I'm also thinking of uh, texts like Nick Hayes, The Rhyme of the Modern Mariner, which reworks the Coleridge poem. And it's a good text to talk about imminent eco-disaster. It repurposes a canonical text and communicates an ecological message. And the focus is on the endless wastes. The ocean has been transformed into waste, what I've called the decadent sublime, a sublimity of waste itself, entire oceans of waste. But like Apupan, Nick Hayes also returns us to a certain mythopoiesis about the earth, about the human life on earth, about interconnectedness of earth. So it invokes Thor, Myrmidons, and mythic creatures, all implying an older form of knowledge which we have ignored, and texts like that. But I'm also interested in, though I've not written on it, I mean, it's, it's part of my eco-precarity book, Carl Pfeiffer's uh, Chernobyl text, uh, Radioactive Forever. I'm not yet come to grips with this particular text, uh, but uh, the only textile graphic novel I know on Fukushima, Ichi F, uh, I-C-H-I hyphen F, is a massive text as well. And I think these texts are central to how, how the message of ecological disaster can be communicated. I think the value of the demotic form, which I said is useful to talk about social injustice or social inequality, is equally important for ecological messages. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Um, and uh, I, yeah, plasticine, I love that uh, neologism. Um, tell me, uh, Pramod, how do you bring this, your vision, your work, your research, comics, graphic novels, uh, all of the stuff that you do into your classroom? And what is the Pramod kind of, you know, trademark teaching method? My students, some of whom will be online, will say several awful things, so it's better that they're on mute. Uh, uh, I have actually never offered a full-fledged course on comics. That's the interesting thing. Comics have figured, graphic novels and comics have figured in the courses I teach. I've uh, taught uh, Bhimayana. Uh, I've taught Hush as part of a course on human rights and literature. I've taught as part of post-colonial literatures. And this time I did uh, a course on the new humanities where some of these uh, texts uh, figured again, Carl Pfeiffer's uh, Radioactive Forever figured in that. Uh, when we do that in the kind of uh, uh, classrooms we have, the focus is a lot on contents, I must say that, and not adequately enough on form, which is a bit of a deterrent, uh, but there are, actual logistical issues. You have to 
see that every student has a copy of it. So not always possible for everyone to acquire expensive works. Say for instance, if I want to teach graphic medicine and uh, the text, the, the very difficult to get hold of unless you're willing to pay. So we don't always have copies. So we, we make do, we'll not spell out all the methods by which we make text available. Um, so there's a lot of emphasis on contents, but we do try and do a little bit at least with form. For instance, we have looked at the use of ethnic art to tell the story of Ambedkar and the revolution he brought in. We'll look at the symbolism in Hush, the wordless picture book on child sexual abuse. And we have looked at how these forms engender a multimodal literacy. And that has been part of the discussion for a very long time. The use of the artwork and the symbolism. So in terms of form, there's been a considerable amount of insistence on looking at uh, things like uh, symbolism. Uh, but I suppose if one is going to do a full-fledged course on the graphic novel, we will do a variety of texts as well, from the more traditional panel gata sequential art to wordless texts like, say, The Arrival or, or, or Hush. Pramod, have you noticed uh, um, you know, students being a little bit I don't know, surprised that you have on your syllabus, you know, graphic novels, comics? Uh, uh, not, not in the university where I teach, which is uh, a little more uh, open about it. Like I said, it is gaining, shall we say, respectability across the country. I've had very senior faculty surprised, however, at the fact that, you know, um, uh, I have comics on the syllabus. And when they've seen me reading comics, there was this expression on their face saying, is this what we pay you for? You know, <laughs> I mean, how could you possibly be spending your time? And you should be reading Wordsworth. Um, well, I suppose, yes, Wordsworth, we'll say has his moments. Um, not very often, but occasionally. Uh, but comics, but uh, so th there have been moments of surprise, but increasingly students are asking for graphic texts and comics, which I think is, is interesting about maybe five to eight years ago, it may not have been so popular, but it has morale has been mainstreamed into this. So I think that's an interesting one. We have had students, I had a student who worked on uh, mouse a few years ago for a dissertation. There's uh, somebody working on medical humanities who's looking at cancer across media and graphic medicine is one of the forms being done. But in the syllabus, it has a rather uneasy location, I would think, alongside uh, uh, print, text, 400 pages, gritty social realism or the post-colonial, and then there are these uh, demotic forms. So I, I, I think it's an interesting blend, more challenging also. Absolutely. Um, so we, you kind of started talking about this earlier in our conversation, but where is the vitality, the heartbeat in comics in India today? And I know that you have the, the Delhi Comic Arts Festival. Okay, I would think it's in the non-fictional work coming out of the publishing houses in India. That's where it would be, more than uh, any other. So I would think the best work is coming out in the form of the partition volume, this side, that side, which was experimental in parts, the POW anthology of comics, the new series called Long Form, uh, the non-fictional autobiographical memoir for work from Navayana, which has done the Ambedkar text, which has done the Jyotiba Pune text. These texts which work with the central socio-political concerns of Indian literature, but also Indian 
polity, Indian social order, and put them into this multimodal demotic uh, form. That's where I think the best work is appearing, more than the fictionalized accounts that you occasionally encounter. I think this is where it is, really speaking. Is there There's a key element in what you have termed the expansion of the Planetary Republic of Comics? Thank you, yeah. Um, the, is there still a, a sense of, within comics at least, a kind of um, omnipresence of comics from outside of India? Or is India really like defining the space as its own? Oh, no, there is plenty of uh, stuff coming, out, uh, coming from outside India into the Indian markets. Uh, there is a version of uh, DC Marvel, which comes in Gotham Comics. Uh, there is a lot of uh, exchange of this that happens. And uh, it's also to do with the Hollywoodization of comics. Let's, let's understand that. The Marvel and the Marvel Cinematic Universe has a lot, to, uh, a lot that just contributed to the popularization of the comic books. So it's a, a very intertextual genre where the book speaks to the film and vice versa. And the hype around these films do generate an interest in the comic books as well. Uh, whether it is the Michael Bay Transformers to the superhero uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe. So there is a lot of uh, foreign texts uh, that come in. I know people who are extremely aware of, for example, web comics as well. I have not worked with those. Uh, I follow things like uh, negative, positive, uh, and the web comics there. But it's not something I have engaged with in any seriousness. But I know people who are very big fans of web comics. Pramod, you have uh, taken us on a journey. I know that you know you do so much in your research. It's really quite unbelievable how much you do publish. Um, including your very important work on graphic novels and comics from India. I can't wait for your new book on this. And um, thank you so much, Pramod, for joining me today for discussion. Thank you for having me over. It's been interesting to talk to. I like your work. Uh, and I think there's a lot of things that can be done and shared uh, in terms of indigenous comics, but also comics from other traditions. Uh, my discovery of the Ukrainian and Russian notebooks being an example of what, what can be done. But yes, so thank you very much. Really yeah, you're good. right. You're absolutely right. Lots of parallels that we can kind yeah. of learn from one another. Um, thank you, Pramod. And um, 